Welcome to episode number 80. Today we've got Chris Sugar on here. He's the, uh, one of the senior editors at uh, T Nation. We're going to get talking about political correctness in the fitness industry, about declining testosterone in men and TRT, why Chris thinks it's a good idea to marry a fit person, and how he's noticed that psychologically unstable people seem to be drawn to extreme diets, plus a discussion about fitness writing and publishing as in his role with T Nation. Thanks for checking it out. Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. It's Andrew Coates here. Dean Guido is sitting here with me, and today we've got Chris Sugar on. Welcome, Chris. I'm going to introduce him a little bit. Uh, one of the coolest parts about uh, us hosting this podcast is we get to talk to a lot of uh, experienced, long-standing industry professionals, people who I've been reading their work for well upwards or, or longer than a decade, and, and Chris is one of those people. Uh, he's a senior editor and uh, chief content officer at Testosterone Nation, where uh, I've been a big fan and reading it for a really long time. And uh, just this week, I uh, got my first article published on there, which is pretty much the coolest thing I could have imagined. Shameless so Shameless plug. So welcome, Chris. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. And we kind of talked just before the show, but like how how many years was it? At T- <laughs> is outstanding. Uh, I have... I have been with T Nation for 19 years now. My very first job at T Nation, I remember I came out as an assistant editor, but I was a high school teacher at the time, and I was just freelancing some fitness and strength training articles. And my very first job was actually answering the leftover emails that we didn't put on the site when we answered, had like a reader mail section. I would answer the leftover ones. So I started just above sweeping the floors. You were scrubbing the metaphorical <laughs> toilets of, uh, of T-Nation. <laughs> exactly. And it's been 19 years, and it's been, it's been great. Love it. T-Nation turned, turned uh, 20 just recently. Holy shit. I think T-Nation was – I think that was the first – one of the first places I had an article. And I remember, like, it was – I think it was Anaconda. I can't remember which supplement it was at the time. Anyways, like I was way too young. I had no money, so I couldn't afford it. But it's super expensive <laughs> if you're in Canada because like you couldn't get it over without this enormous shipping amount. So it's like every article was like stuff I couldn't purchase. And it made me so sad <laughs> for so many years. Because it started out as T-Mag, right? That's, that's the original name. Yeah, the original name is Testosterone. Yeah. And we sell, we still sell like the original classic old school t-shirts that just say testosterone across the front. And then our readers started calling it T-Mag and shortening it. And we had a paper magazine for a while called Testosterone. And uh, we just decided to expand on that and call it Testosterone Nation, which became T-Nation. I guess now uh, we've got this interesting thing happening in our pop culture. And of course, we're going to talk about political correctness. But do you guys get any blowback of being this stereotypical high testosterone masculine sort of thing in a world where all of a sudden masculinity I mean I don't know if I buy into this whole idea that masculinity is under attack per se that's certainly what some people think but you know masculinity is definitely being criticized you hear the term toxic masculinity which is ostensibly supposed to be this highlighting of the bad behavior but I think a lot of us feel like the people who are throwing around this language are really kind of encompassing all things masculine. So uh, do you guys get any pushback just because that's your image? Or do you just tune those uh, Sure. Out? Sure. I mean, when you have like over a million people on your Facebook page, you're always going to get, there's always going to be one or two. 
And sometimes if anyone disagrees with anything, it's like, well, your site has the word testosterone in it. So I knew that was coming. And you're <laughs> like, you know, half of our writers are PhDs and MDs. I've got three college degrees. TC has two. My wife has two, who's an editor. You know, they just jump to this. Well, this must be some big muscle-bound lunk. And it's, you know, uh, of course that's where, but you know, that's where, that's where stupid people go (laughs) if they don't have an argument. Um, I'll give you an example. I noticed this on our, uh, our Instagram page the other day. We posted some, some funny, mean thing and a female follower got on there and she said something about, that's just what I would expect from my misogynist with the name (laughs) testosterone in the name. Like we're automatically misogynist like T-Nation doesn't have a female editor you know um, and I just thought well you know nothing about it was anti-woman or, or anything like that so uh, one of our moderators responded back in a in a nice way and said see this is exactly what I would expect from a bunch of misogynists like you and it's like that was a female moderator and a, clearly you have nothing else to go on you can just you know call names and that's where a lot of the the PC culture is coming from they don't really have an argument, so they just have to go. They just have to call you a name and put you into this this oversimplified category. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with uh, the politically correct movement. It, you can't you can't argue anymore. You can't have a disagreement. You can't have a discussion anymore because if you have better points than they do, then Maybe you're racist or you're homophobic or you're xenophobic or you're, you're, you're some sort of phobic instead of just, I'm a person who disagrees with you. Let's talk. They have nothing to talk about, so they call you a name. And it waters down genuine examples of true racism, true homophobia, which, which are bad things. Exactly. When you just throw around exactly. these terms loosely, they lose all meaning. And then you have problems where people turn a blind eye to genuine examples of it. So it's, I, I wanted to get your thoughts about just how you feel about how overtly the PC culture has especially stepped into the fitness industry and some of the problems we're seeing as a result of that. So unleash the hounds. Yeah. On that. Well, you, you know, you know, politics type stuff, all that stuff aside, when it starts getting into your business and your passion, it becomes something that I feel like I have to speak up about. And we've seen this in a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. Um, there was actually a great study out of the UK about something called normalization. And normalization is when you take something that is abnormal and you make it seem normal uh, so people often don't take care of the problem. And this is, off, this is happening with um, people who are overweight and obesity and things like that. And what the UK study found was uh, in the UK, you see it here now too, but in the UK, a lot of the companies were using overweight people in their advertisements. And I totally understand why they're doing it. 50% of the population is at least chubby, Mm -hmm. if not fat or obese. And so they have to sell clothes to people. They have to sell these things to people. Um, But when it becomes normalized, then that becomes... Um, acceptable. It's like, no, I, there's nothing wrong with me. They can't see that there's a, a real medical condition that they need to take care of anymore. And I was actually getting my hair cut the other day, and I looked at uh, the magazine sitting out on the table. And one of them showed a, uh, an overweight woman 
on the cover. And I didn't think anything about it until I realized it was a women's fitness magazine. I believe it was Shape or, or Women's Health or something like that. And uh, I just thought, well, wait a minute. This, this, this woman is overweight. I mean, she's, she's really close to that pre-diabetic mm-hmm. status. But now she's on the cover of a health magazine, which makes everyone else look and say, well, I must be okay. It's, it's, like, it's like this. If, if you've ever hung around, and, and people tease women about doing this all the time, is the pretty girl wants to have ugly friends, so she seems even prettier. Yeah. And if, if you hang around, and I've seen, I've seen male lifters do this too. Let's not <laughs> let the, the men escape here. If you're the, if you're the leanest of, of your fat group of friends, then you feel pretty good about it, even though technically you have 25 pounds to lose and are looking pretty bad. And it's starting to affect your health. You're starting to get out of breath when you're trying to do high rep squats, but you're still the leanest of your fat friends. That's an example of normalization. And it's become sort of a PC thing because you can't point that out anymore. In fact, um, a lot of the social media sites are starting to look really closely at uh, if, you're, if you're promoting your fat loss article, like here's an article to help you lose fat. Well, on the far end of the PC culture, that itself is fat shaming. Which is insane when you think about it. We're hearing about, <clears throat> sorry, we're hearing about doctors. Uh, for, now, it, a lot of it is genuinely in the way that doctors do speak to their patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, but doctors catching a lot of crap for encouraging people to lose weight and how that's fat shaming. I think on one hand, there's a legitimate argument where, let's say if, I think this has been demonstrated that physicians don't necessarily take as seriously the complaints about pain or, or certain issues from people who are obese and they default to telling them, hey, you have to lose the weight and sometimes other conditions can be missed. Now, that That's legitimate. We have to address that genuinely. Right. But at the same time, if physicians lose the ability to turn around and say to someone medically, this is good for your health uh, to lose weight and you're looking at some serious health risks long term diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, certain types of uh, gastrointestinal cancers you're at higher risk of. And of course, then there's the the extreme end of the body positivity movement. I'm fine with that for the most part. It's extreme and the health at any size crowd where, and, I, and I've lambasted these people before, I think they're dangerous charlatans who are advancing their own ideological agenda at the expense of some very vulnerable people who are by and large pretty unhappy and trying to tell right. them that they have to be fat. Um, and we see that with people like Tess Holliday is the woman who got on Cosmopolitan. And of course, then it came out that she was this nasty racist person. Um, but I've heard stories about how she will unfollow and, and sort of disavow people who were very much part of her movement and then turned around and lost the weight because they wanted to be healthier. They felt happier. And that was sort of a betrayal of her ideology to them. And once I think, and that's an extreme corner of it, but I think that stuff's terrifyingly dangerous. Right. And do you know how the uh, fat acceptance and movement got started originally? I do not. Um, This is the furthest I've uh, I've looked back at this. And I remember remember this from years ago, and I did some research on it. Basically, there was a man who was a, a fairly lean guy, and he had a fat fetish. He just really, really liked big, big women. And I believe he was a feeder. You know, that's where they like to yeah. feed people and get them even fatter. And it's a sexual turn on. He started one of the very first fat pride movements. 
And that has morphed over the years into uh, body positivity and things like that. And I totally get fat shaming. Now, for your listeners who don't know, I was obese in college. I was medically diagnosed as obese in college. And uh, I lost all the weight and uh, through running and starvation. And that's when I started looking at weight training because I realized you can't just lose the weight and look better. You have to add, add, add some weights as well. And that's how I got started in the fitness industry. Um, so I totally understand. I, you know, I've been the guy. I've been the fat guy who took up a lot of space and yet was completely invisible in the eyes of other people. I've been called the names. I understand that completely. But at the same time, if the extremists were around back in the 90s when I was overweight, I may have fallen for that, you know, at, mm-hmm. at 20 years old. I may have fallen for uh, you can be healthy at any size. Uh, you're beautiful just the way you are. Everyone deserves love and all that. And if I would have fallen for it, I'd probably be dead right now. So I needed a little bit of shame. Now, no, do not walk around saying, hey, fatty, you're fat, Mr. Fat Pants. You know, no, of course you don't do that. But at the same time, not every diet article is fat shaming. Not every workout article is fat shaming. And your doctor telling you you're right on the verge of getting type 2 diabetes is not fat shaming. No, type 2 diabetes does not care if you're body positive. I think I heard that somewhere recently. So I'm I'm stealing that from someone. Well, no, yeah, I'm not going to get that. Something that I've I've seen with virtually anyone who has lost a lot of weight and kept it off, they're very quick to say that, yes, I was fat, just as the way you did. Uh, they're quick to explain how they were unhealthy or unhappy about it, and they knew that it was an unhealthy situation, and losing the weight uh, has changed their life. <clears throat> so, I, and unfortunately, I've also seen a lot of, people who've said that it was something that someone said to them that made them feel embarrassed about how they were that gave them that nudge in that direction. It spurred some action. I've said this recently. And I want to be very careful in how we articulate this. You can look at someone. I think John Burke is a good example of a fitness professional who's gotten a lot of crap for fat shaming people. He's been labeled a concern troll. And, and I think there's some validity to some of that stuff. I do not believe in censoring people or ideas that we disagree with or that offend us. Genuine hate speech, that's a different story. That, stuff's, that stuff is, is not good in any shape or form. But people should be a, a, not forced to hear things they don't agree with, but they shouldn't be able to ban those things because there is still a small subsection of the population who will seek out an individual like that and their message will help them. As long as other people who are vulnerable, who it's going to cause problems for, are not forced to be bombarded by it, we should still allow people to find the right message for them. And that does not mean I'm endorsing that message, but I certainly am opposed to the idea of shutting it down. You said it perfectly. Everyone's got to have the right to find the right message for them at where they're at. Because some people aren't going to respond to the overly positive stuff, and that's just the truth. So, I mean, there's probably a spectrum and there's someone to fill that void at some point in the spectrum. Now that might right. seem- and you know, and no, and no one is saying, don't be, don't be unhappy, don't don't beat yourself up continuously. But if you're too positive about your body, you might not have that uh, that impetus to change. <laughs> and I think I think that's that's the problem. So it, it it's a really really tricky thing, and we're getting more and more overweight as a society. 
and I, I, I just, um, you know, the, confession time. Mm-hmm. I saw an episode of the K- Kardashians once. <laughs> just one, I promise. And uh, one of the Kardashians was complaining about um, being overweight, but then she, she said, no, I'm proud of my curves. I love this. I love myself. It's all great. Uh, fast forward 20 minutes at the end of the episode, whichever Kardashian it was, she was laying in the kitchen floor crying about being overweight. And I thought that was just a perfect example of that's really how a lot of people feel. Even a lot of the people saying, I'm perfectly happy. Look at these curves. I know that deep down they're not feeling good about that. And maybe they have just given up. And and if you have the, the, the extremist on the, um, you know, the fat fat uh, health at every size movement telling them diets don't work. You look great. Uh, you're actually, this is actually perfectly healthy for you. Uh, in fact, I heard one group calling it, it's just a body type. Uh, extremely overweight is just a body type. Uh, as in there's nothing you can do about it. It's like being white or black or tall or short. That's when I think we almost have to step up and say, listen, call it fat shaming if you want. I was fat. Here are the facts. Here's how I feel now. And please, those of us who were fat before, we're the first ones who want to help you because yeah. we see what it's done for us to lose weight and get into shape. And just going to what I was saying about, you know, not believing in banning anything. I don't believe in banning the voice of the, the extreme end of stuff. I think it's important that people have to be confronted by that and make their own decisions. Um, so they have every much of the right to be there, but I, we also have the right to highlight the fact that from a medical standpoint, they're dead wrong. And we can highlight the problems within their message. So well, they'll say like, "Oh, they don't have diabetes," but that's the last thing to fucking show up after getting fat. Yeah. So and that's just that's just science. And mm-hmm. diabetes is a legitimate disease. So it, it, I think Mike said it was like, "There's a science to this thing, and it's not like it's there." Um, but <laughs> testosterone, <laughs> T Nation, the two kind of, and we kind of talked about this before, but they're kind of connected. Um, and so it isn't surprising that you frequently discuss it and kind of the problems that come with the declining testosterone in men in this world, in this environment. What are your thoughts on all this and TRT for men, I guess, in its current state? It's, it's really interesting. We have an article from maybe 2000, and the article was uh, written by a, um, a, a medical student who was a bodybuilder. And he was telling our readers how to lower your testosterone temporarily so you can go to the doctor and get a prescription for TRT. Because in 2000, it was really tough to get a prescription for, for testosterone, even if you were medically low and definitely not borderline. I mean, if it was like if the number was 200 and you were 201, they said, no, yeah. you can't have it. So this guy wrote an article about, I think it was like, uh, stay up all night, yeah, drink five beers, <laughs> eat a lot of soy protein, and then go wake up the next morning for an eight o'clock appointment and get your testosterone tested. Well, fast forward until and now, and I think there's a uh, men's tea clinic right beside of like every, uh, every uh, strip mall. You see one of these things. So it has really changed a lot in, in a good way for the most part. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we started out writing a lot. We wanted to write honestly about uh, this uh, T.C. Luoma, the editor, Tim Patterson, the owner of T Nation. They wanted to make T Nation very honest about everything. So we've never 
lied about uh, steroids, uh, the, the, how it's used in bodybuilding, the good things that can be, uh, that can, that can revolve around it, the bad things that can revolve around it. It's always been very straightforward. And in recent years, I think we've gone more towards TRT a little bit because, you know, people who want to use steroids are going to use them and people who don't are, are not going to use them. We're not trying to convince them one way or the other. We just want to let them, let them know the facts. And with TRT, it's, it's really interesting because, um, well, well, some of the symptoms really quickly, uh, the, the test can be all over the place. And you, uh, TC has written some great stuff about how to get a proper testosterone test uh, to really get it accurate. Because there's so many guys with low testosterone, their doctor won't put them on a, uh, won't give them one, give them a prescription because they're, they're just not quite low enough on the day they're tested. But, you know, generally fat gain, depression, low libido, sexual issues, you have a higher risk of heart problems, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, more belly fat, all the stuff we usually know. Um, but there's also a, a crazy element to it that I call it positive aggression. A normal or a high normal testosterone level gives you this positive aggression. And we talked a little bit about, you know, toxic mas masculinity and, and things like that. What people don't realize is there is a, um, I call it no steroid rage. And it's uh, men who have low, low testosterone, this has been shown in, in some recent studies, are moodier, angrier, and more depressed. My guess is the popular, like this popular concept now, incels, these involuntary celibate guys who are on the dark web complaining about how they, um, they can't get women interested in them. So there's a lot of anger, pent up anger, and they're finding a community in a voice. These fuckers are nuts. Uh, and every once in a while, that's a very bad sign, by the way, yeah. the, the, when you, when you combine, I have a degree in psychology, one of them. And, uh, when you combine sexual frustration with anger and resentment, that's like, that is a catalyst for some very, very bad things. That's like half of serial killers. That's like half of serial <laughs> rapists. Those two things combined. Well, we're seeing this so amongst this community it's scary. now. The, some of these guys are coming out and we're seeing attacks, planned attacks, usually targeted at women. What? They, you, oh, this shit's insane. They use language. They call the guys that they resent, who apparently can get the girls, they call them chads. And uh, they call the women that they're angry with spacies. And this mm. is some really what? fucked up shit. Yeah, so if you want to go read up about this, Google incel. I-N-C-E-L, and you'll see there's this whole subculture of these guys, and, and there's a lot of pent-up anger and aggression. I, I don't see this group as probably a group representative of having high levels of testosterone. So. No, and that and that's what's really mm. fascinating about it is we're seeing it's it's often the, the opposite way now. Low testosterone guys are the ones that are the problematic ones you want to keep your eyes on. Mm. Um, but, you know, having a normal or high normal, I like to call it, uh, testosterone level leads to this positive aggression. And that is aggression in that I'm going to kick ass at my job. I'm going to kick ass at school. I'm going to kick ass providing for my family. Um, it's a very powerful thing. And it's what makes males a great half to have, <laughs> have in a pair bond in, in, in the species. That's our role. So when you see testosterone plummeting because men are living longer. You have environmental estrogens. You have, you know, birth control pills in the water, all this crazy stuff. 
that is one of the first things I, I, I talk about with any guy over like 35. Uh, he asked me for fat loss advice. He asked me for muscle building advice. And I say, get a test. Get a test. Here's an article about how to do it because everything just seems to work better. And surprisingly, you feel better. And yes, you feel more aggressive, but it's like this, this energy for life style of aggression. And that's what a lot of people don't fully understand when they look at testosterone replacement therapy, especially with what we were talking about before with, you know, the, uh, you know, men are kind of getting the short end of the stick a lot of times these days, or, you know, getting blamed for a lot of things, toxic masculinity, things like that. Um, people aren't looking at that as much, but I think, I think as we've seen, uh, this is okay here. I'm going to get non PC again. <laughs> well, we brought you on. A, a lot of women will say, a lot of the PC culture women will say that they want the kind, sensitive, nurturing guy. But there's actually been study after study after study done on this. And the fact is, they don't really want what they say they want. In every study, they want what is classically a high testosterone male. And I find, I find that really fascinating because that's what annoys me most about the PC culture is they're saying things that they, I don't even think they really even believe themselves. Like deep down, they really, they really don't believe that. Well, um, it's probably like you get all these like ultra like, Christian conservative and we could, we better like spread it around <laughs> like older men. Uh, and then you find out that uh, secretly they're viewing uh, gay porn sites or on uh, on gay app apps or things like this. Meanwhile, they're speaking out, these pastors or whatever, against how bad homosexuality is. So you, you see some of these sort of the closet things. And I Maybe equating those two is not fair, but there's <laughs> there's one thing I was going to say, and I've said this a bunch of times, and I, and I think it's kind of accurate. You see this sort of, oh God, people are going to get pissed off if you use the term beta, but you get this beta male sort of attitude uh, that you see with some male feminists, not all, some and they, I, I feel like they're inserting, depositing kindness tokens into women in the eventual hope that sex falls out. And I have a massive problem with that kind of behavior. <laughs> That's Andrew's theory. <laughs> and I, I, I've observed this behavior, right? And I totally think this is what, what is going on in those situations. And let's be honest, there are a lot of great men who identify as feminists who are genuine advocates for better treatment of women. And None of this discussion it, is in any way, you know, anti-feminist in the traditional sense of feminism. It's, and hard, to, it's so. hard to judge intention with so mm. much shit going on. And I think that that's the hard part is that some of these movements, which are good, are taken on by people with bad intentions. And they're easy. <clears throat> they're easy movements to gravitate right. towards. And, right. and, 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 you know, a lot of this is not about male versus female no. or anything. It's just about a good, good people versus bad people. Yeah. Like, I would never call myself a male feminist. And every male, every self-described male feminist I've ever known is the biggest fucking douchebag in real life who's trying to bang every chick possible, cheating on his girlfriend, cheating on his wife. Every single one of them that I've seen call themselves that are complete shitheads in real life. So I'll just say that. Um, but it's, it's about being a good person or a bad person. It's like that's not a uh, – that's not – uh, you have to be, I'm a feminist because I want people to be treated fairly. No, all good people want everyone else to be treated fairly. You don't have to, you know, give yourself a label when it comes to this.
I agree with that too. I don't necessarily like labels, and I think people more and more like to affix labels to themselves to belong to tribes and ideologies because they think it makes them feel special or gives them meaning. Um, and I, I'm just not a big fan of labels. So let's pivot that a bit <clears throat> because we you mentioned the female editor that you have at T Nation that happens to be your wife, Danny, who was a recent guest on our podcast, and, and her episode is sensational. So that was cool. So <clears throat> you actually posted something recently about reasons to marry a fit person. And uh, well, you're actually not the only couple that we've ever featured on the podcast. We've had Jay and Sarah Ashman, who are really great. Uh, God, who, who the fuck? Um, Mark and Michelle. Uh, oh, yeah, they're a dating couple. Mark and Michelle. Uh, Dean Somerset and his, his wife, wife, Lindsay, have been on it. Dean's a, a T Nation uh, contributor. Uh, and there's actually another couple that they don't actually parade around that they're in a relationship, but they're really? dating and we've had both of them. We're not going to say names because they, they do not feature that. It's not a secret, but they don't feature that they're a dating relationship. And he is a writer for T Nation. So we'll just leave that there. So uh, what is it about a fit person that maintains a healthy, happy relationship from your own perspective? It, it, it sounds really shallow. When you first say it, which yeah. is why I think the article got a lot of attention because they're like, what's this asshole talking about? <laughs> um, and it, 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 it's not shallow at all, though, because I, I, I study the psychology of this as well. So I kind of see it from both ends. Um, when I was when I was looking at uh, the causes of divorce and the causes of marital problems, all of the usual things popped up. Uh, money issues, infidelities always right up there at the top poor communication skills, things like that. And what really surprised me is like number six or seven on the list was weight gain. Really? And I thought, whoa, whoa. You're, I was even surprised. Like, can you guys say that in a psychology journal? Can you really say that? That's That sure is shallow, that bordering on fat shaming. But then you really start thinking about what weight gain does to you. Um, you have mood changes, you have behavioral changes. Uh, there's resentment oftentimes. Um, your, your energy is low, your sex drive often goes to crap. Or even if your sex drive is there, you just don't wanna be naked anymore or you feel bad about yourself. Um, all of, you take all of those things and you, weight gain in a marriage can really hurt people. Uh, it can really hurt marriages. So my theory was, here's one of the reasons to marry a fit person. Uh, they're probably going to stay fit. And if they do that, then that will keep them from maybe <laughs> suffering from depression or feeling so bad about themselves that they don't want to have sex anymore. Because, you know, husbands love it when wives stop having sex with them for like over a year at a time. That's good for a marriage. So, but fit people, and there's been studies on this, um, fit people tend to have more sex more often fit women or more orgasmic than, than unfit women. Um, so in that alone, I think that really makes for a strong marriage. Fit people are generally happier. They suffer from less depression. Anyone can suffer from depression, but really fit people who are, keep themselves in shape and don't get overweight, they don't suffer from as much depression. And those, if one partner gets depressed in a marriage, Obviously, that can really hurt a relationship. Fit people make more money across the board generally. And there's lots of reasons for that. But uh, And also, you know, you kind of want someone who shares a passion. I always talk to people and say, how, how into this are you? Are you someone who kind of goes to the gym once or twice a week and kind of wanders around and uses a machine and walks on a treadmill? Or are you like 
are you like us? Do you like absorb this stuff? Do you kind of work? Not, you don't have to work in the business, but you, you read T Nation all the time. You, you go to the gym four or five days a week. You watch what you eat. You keep a food log sometimes. You read labels. You really don't want to be married to someone who does not do that because you're going to drive each other crazy. Yeah. For, for one thing. <laughs> it's, it's already hard enough not to drive each other crazy in a relationship to begin with. So just add those elements. Something that, um, I was thinking as you're saying all this stuff, and it's it's from my personal experience uh, training clients for a long time. I've encountered problems a couple of times. It's it's fairly uncommon when you have a partner who, let's say one partner wants to get in shape, and it might already be the partner who's slightly in better shape of the two. And then the other partner feels very, very insecure about that partner's efforts. And I've in one particular example, seen a partner go to great lengths to interfere with the experience, to manipulate it. Uh, every time that the partner who was training with me would have a session booked, uh, the spouse would make sure that he had something else he had to do sort of short notice, right? So she was directly interfering on a very regular basis with his ability to even get to the gym. And it was fairly pervasive and obvious what was going on. And then she tried to take control of the session booking and control the communication with me. And I wasn't really going to have that. I tried to find a way to be supportive with this whole thing, but ultimately she just was determined to interfere with any attempts on his part to get himself into better shape. And that is so, so true. I think one of my first articles for, was for T Nation was about that. And it was about these um, toxic personalities and that, and I wrote an article about the toxic personalities in the fitness community and the, and the saboteur was definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. And I have a recent article that looked at exactly what you're talking about. And it is true. If one partner gets in shape, loses weight, shapes up, and the other partner does not, they do have higher odds of getting divorced. And it can actually go both ways. It can be resentment on the part of the, you know, the person who didn't get in shape. And it can also be because the person who got in shape just becomes a nag and starts annoying the person who didn't get in, didn't get into shape. Um, one of the things that was fascinating about the study was this was true with women. If uh, a married couple, both of them are kind of overweight, the woman gets a trainer, starts working out, gets in better shape, uh, she would – She's often empowered by this. Empowered is a word that's overused a lot here lately, mm -hmm. but she's genuinely empowered by this and leaves the already bad relationship mm -hmm. because she feels she has, she can do it now. I mean, if she lost 40 pounds and, and started deadlifting, what else can she do? Mm -hmm. Well, she can get out of this crappy relationship. And I, th I thought that was really fascinating. It's one of the ways that fitness can help you. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think I, I do think that people will sabotage and it is often your friends and family. I've, the worst example I've ever heard of it hit the news. Uh, I feel like it was four or five years ago I read this and it was a, it was a general, gentleman in he's not a gentleman for what he did in India and he was trying to control his wife to the, to the degree that he was putting steroids into her food. She had yeah, your facial expression tells me the surprise wow. here. She had started to grow facial hair, uh, amongst other things. And his effort was to try to keep her bigger so that way she wouldn't go out uh, in, in a way to control her. This, this is extraordinarily extreme. 
but ultimately it came out what he was doing. He was charged with it. She ultimately did get free of this marriage and left him and and that was, you know, there's a happy ending in that. But I mean, she had seen physiological changes due to the fact this guy was spiking her food. Um, but that's the lengths that one human went to to try to control another person. That's terrifying. But Where are you finding the shit, man? You're finding all the internet trash. You got some good ones today. <laughs> that one, that, that was appalling. But. That's probably yeah, the same I, I read of I read another one where it was from uh, the other point of the other side of things, and the woman basically had a a, a, a Munchausen syndrome, but it was to it was to prevent her like she was attracted to this guy because he was in good shape, he looked good, she, uh, he caught her eye. But once they were together, it was like I want to keep him now, and I don't want other women looking at him. So she would basically every anytime he wanted to work out, anytime he wanted to do something, she would get sick. What? And to, to, to prevent his workouts, you know, you have to stay home with me to do this. So it, it's really surprising. So once again, if, if at all possible, and, and I'm not saying I'm not saying relationships don't work if you don't marry a fit person and you're someone who's really into this. Obviously, they do. But if at all possible, it, it certainly increases your odds of having a great marriage. <laughs> This really leads well into the next question we had for you, so we got to go here. Well, and we, we talked about you writing about psychology, but you wrote about noticing a relationship where psychologically unstable people are drawn to extreme diets. How does it make them feel special, and kind of would you explain this theory in a little bit more? We are going to get in so much trouble for this episode, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> We're just talking shit. Okay, like, well, now let me start by saying I have tried every crazy diet out there. First, because, like I said, I was the overweight guy. I struggled with it for years after I lost the initial weight. So I, I've tried everything. I've done, I, I did a meat-only carnivore diet like eight years ago, even though it's just now starting to be popular. I've done fasting. I've done everything. Um, I've gone super low carb. I've been into ketosis. I was pissing on those little strips to see if I was in keto. I've done all this. So I'm not putting anybody down who who tries these things, it's more of a cautionary note. We know from psychology that people who have certain psychological issues are drawn to anorexia, bulimia, and certain eating disorders. Um, it's, it's, it's just a fact we know this. There's been many, many studies on the relationship between, say, veganism and depression where we know now that veganism and depression are correlated. What the only, the only point of, uh, of uh, disagreement among the researchers is are vegans drawn or, I mean, excuse me, are depressed people drawn to veganism or does veganism cause depression? Mm. The depression is there both ways. So I've written a lot about this and I, I've researched it a lot and I just started noticing recently that some people who are very drawn to extreme diets, keto, raw food diets, veganism, carnivore diets, intermittent fasting, like extreme forms of it, um, they seem to overlap in a lot of the psychological parameters as people who, are, uh, who fall into eating disorders. In fact, I, I, know, I know a few vegans who are now on the raw carnivore diet. They literally went from veganism to eating raw meat only. Now, the common denominator is the person. 
And both of those are wacky extremes that aren't really necessary to, to be in shape or, or be healthy. And here's the difference, though. Here's where hopefully this, hopefully if I've offended everyone so far, this will, this will make it okay. It, it's only when it turns into what I call a glassy-eyed food religion is when it becomes the problem. A glassy-eyed food like religion. That. In other words, anyone can go, you know what, I want to lose some weight. Uh, keto can kind of kill your appetite after a while, which helps you control calories which helps you lose weight because it's all about taking in fewer calories no matter what you do. Um, so I'm going to try keto and I'm going to give it six weeks and it'll be a fun experiment. That sounds, that sounds really cool. Maybe I'll take some photos of my abs when I'm, when I'm finished. Perfectly fine. But when you turn into this keto for life, you buy the t-shirt that says keto for life. Anyone not doing keto now becomes stupid and ignorant, and you're clearly superior to them. Um, even when you start to see ill effects, like irritability, or uh, you, know, you can't concentrate as well, or all muscle gain and strength gains stop completely after so many weeks on, on, on keto, even when they see that and they can't stop, they can't give it up, that's when you have gone from a diet strategy to a food religion. And those are the people that I suspect there are other problems going on. There are other mental things, not necessarily mental disorders, but they're not self-actualized in some way. So they have, they have locked themselves on to this, a tribe, like you said, and that becomes their thing. It becomes their religion. And with, with eating disorders, like with anorexia, um, what psychologists often say, there's a lot of debate about this, but what psychologists often say is it's this ability of to, to have control over something. Mm -hmm. If you feel out of control, so many psychological problems and issues and disorders are rooted in this, this feeling of being out of control of your life. Well, one thing you can control pretty easily is what you put, pick up and stick in your face. And anorexics mm -hmm. oftentimes suffer from this, and that's the one thing they can control. It's not always just about wanting to lose weight and then it goes too far. Um, it's about the underlying issues. And it is my guess as an amateur psychologist <laughs> that many people attracted to extreme bodybuilding style diets or fit diets, fast and, and keto and carnivore diets may have some overlap there, just some overlap. And it's something to, you know, be careful, just be careful. I think, and you sort of said it right there. Uh, I think we could even say this about anyone who takes any extreme end of fitness, which includes extreme ends of uh, like body dysmorphia that can lead to the desire to get like absolutely massive inject. And I think that that can fuel that. I think within reason it can be a positive. When it gets to extreme ends, when it rules your life, same thing. There are probably some negative things about it. So this is obviously not just to shit on anyone who like poor vegans, right? Uh, I, I know some vegans. I have some vegan clients, and oh my god, if they're listening to this, guys, I love you, and I totally support your well, lifestyle choices. But <laughs> let me finish this. But uh, um, it, it's it's not just these particular things. Like any extreme expression of fitness or nutrition in any direction 
I have a feeling there's definitely a relationship, whether it's cause or effect or, or if it's just correlational. I just believe that there are relationships going on there. And the reason why is because to be extreme, and you, you talked about control and kind of where a lot of these diseases come into effect is like they can control it. You have to be in control of your shit with any of those extreme diets because you're either taking out food groups, you're super specific, workout plans have to be dialed in. It is control. You have to be controlled in the, or otherwise you're not there. And most of the people preaching non-sexy is like they're controlling their calories, but they're like, they have options. Well, which is scary. We, we stay away from naming this a little crazy, but uh, you've probably heard of the snake diet guy, right? Because obviously that's a very good example. The snake diet guy. The snake diet. Uh, I don't think so. Oh, God. You need, you need to Google this shit, like, really. Um, he's got 150,000 plus followers on a Facebook group. He's actually here in the Edmonton area, and, and I've met him in person. He's a strange little human. Um, he's a virulent little nasty. If you go at him and he likes negative attention, he's blown up. Uh, Brad Schoenfeld, he's had, had his followers uh, dox Brad Schoenfeld's Instagram account amongst other people. And Brad, Dr. Mike Isertel, Lane Norton of all, like publicly called him out. And he just perpetuates very extreme end fasting, dry fasting. He makes a lot of claims about being able to cure HIV, cancer, and other diseases through fasting. He drinks his own urine. There's a lot of other crazy behavior there. So this is one of the really extreme ends of crazy, but he draws in a lot of a following of people who will do this. So you may want to go and explore this, find out about it. It might make for some great uh, Still content. Don't let him write an article. Please. Oh well, I don't think they'll ever let him do that. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, no, that 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 is crazy. In fact, um, it, you said dry fasting. I'm assuming yes. that's some sort of not drinking no water? water. No water. Yeah. Wow. Just fucking dangerous. And, uh, yeah, it, it's crazy. You know, I heard of a term an, a, a while back, and they called it. Well, a girl in my gym was telling me about it. She goes, I'm water fasting for three days. But what she meant by that was she was only drinking water for three days. Now, this girl I know is a former anorexic, but she was really drawn to this water fast craze, which some celebrity was doing. And I was, what, what is the fucking difference between a water fast and being anorexic again? I'm not anorexic. I'm water fasting. <laughs> not funny well i think oh. it, but it's just like <laughs> when you lay it out like that it's like that is anorexia here here is actually yes yeah. exactly here's a, a continuation of that thought and i've seen this before and i've said it in a lot of ways some of these extreme dietary behaviors are just more socially acceptable versions of eating disorders without a doubt that's what's going well, on and that's why it's positive to talk about this shit and, and figure out what the facts are so at least people have the information so like people aren't pulling the wool over people's eyes saying oh this is this because on the other end of things you put people in these extreme diets and you start changing them psychologically whether it's because they're calorie deprived or whatever and then shit starts to manifest so it is dangerous sometimes to perpetuate the some of the positives in some of these extreme diets especially because susceptible people are always going to latch on to these things so it, it is dangerous in a sense not to talk about it and even, even though we're making fun of it, that gives a viewpoint of maybe someone will question some of the shit, even if we are being total dicks sometimes. You know, <laughs> we're, we're rarely total dicks. I mean, <clears throat> we're probably dancing around that pretty good in this episode, but I think some things just well, need what, to be said. One more thing about the, the extreme diets, and I wrote something on the carnivore diet. I believe the title is something super creative and eloquent, like the carnivore diet is dumb. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, I said to the point, well, if you're, if you're cooking your meat, you're cooking the vitamin C out of it, and you're, you, you can actually risk getting scurvy. Like, people don't get scurvy these days, you know? 
well, since I wrote that article, I've read about three cases of carnivore dieters getting scurvy. Now that's dangerous. Yeah, if it was if it was sort of accidental, they were experimenting and they didn't supplement or whatever. Uh, I totally get it. But if that if they can't go, okay, wait a minute, maybe this was a little crazy. Maybe I need to uh, take some vitamin C and eat some spinach. Um, then then they're okay. But if they if they don't accept that, if they I went to a carnivore diet website where the guy says you absolutely do not need to supplement. Yeah, like and he had guy. abs. And, and by the way, I've, you know, when the paleo was first taking off um, and people got really crazy with it, and I was kind of one of them. I did paleo <laughs> almost – I did like 95% paleo for a year. Um, when that was first taking off, uh, I knew some of the people who had books out about paleo, who were the gurus of paleo, and guess what? They did not eat paleo funny how that shit is well yeah or at least not all the time i mean like i've sat there and watched these people not eat paleo and then write a blog about if you eat a bean if you eat a legume that's technically not paleo and you're not a real paleo dieter because you ate beans well then they find ways to make like it's oh. it's, it's that whole idea of the, they catch on because they work because people are taking food groups out but then now paleo and gluten-free People are getting just as fat on that shit because people have found a way to make everything gluten-free and paleo. So it's just one right. of those things right now. It's, right. And that's the other extreme is paleo. that now paleo is like you can be just as overweight on paleo and gluten-free as anyone else. Before, if you cut out bread and all the gluten shit, you, you lose a lot of food. You are so adherent to the technical letter of it that you've completely lost the spirit of the idea <laughs> of the, the idea. And the idea was basically just eat healthier and whole foods. It's like if we distill it down to it. And paleo cookies. Right. That is the antithesis well, I, of the I, idea. I had um, I had some people who wrote paleo cookbooks send me because I was I was kind of I like the idea of paleo for the average overweight America, not yeah. so great for people who lift weights all the time. And so I had these people send me their paleo cookbooks, and there was so much honey in every <laughs> recipe. I'm like, there's no caveman <laughs> who ate two pounds of honey a week. You know? Like Blue, that's the only one from Jungle Book. The I, bear. I think there's <laughs> also something like... very important to point out in this too, and and we've said this before on the podcast. If we eat as much as we might malign some of these the, these dietary behaviors, I think it's really important to go back to our earlier discussion about the uh, the society is is more obese than ever. The typical Western diet is also totally fucking insane, and as if not more problematic than any of these other things that we're making light of. Our default setting right now is a society is dangerous. And so I have no issue with someone experimenting with wanting to try keto or <clears throat> paleo uh, as long as they understand at its essence, you still have to get your calories under control. Someone who's perpetuating the idea that it doesn't matter and you can eat as much fat as you want on keto is completely fucked. And I, I know people want to believe these myths, but at its core... I have no problem with someone experimenting with <clears throat> the dietary ideas as long as they don't, I can't even talk, <clears throat> as long as they don't take extreme forms or become psychologically dangerous to those people. So, right. but yes, at its essence, our typical Western diet, which is fattening the fucking hell up out of our Western world, is also quite extreme and no one is talking about that. Right, right. And, and, and you know, and that... I guess we get kind of deep into it. So we, in the fitness community, so we start picking at every little diet that comes along. But I, I, I agree with Dr. Jay Teta, who says that uh, he doesn't 
I don't want to uh, misquote him here, but basically if someone is, is very, very overweight, he almost doesn't care how they lose the weight. Absolutely. If that involves eating three, three Oreos a day um, as part of their diet, but that keeps them under a certain caloric level so they lose weight, that's the most important thing because they're, they're in an emergency situation. And I think, I think America would be a fit, great-looking place if everyone did the paleo diet. But I also get a little upset when I read paleo experts telling people you can't eat, you know, beans. That just goes all over me. I'm just like, oh, come on. Get them off the sugar. Get them off the bread. Get them off the desserts. Fantastic. High protein diet. High vegetables. Awesome. But let people have their beans. Come on. <laughs> well, and, and again, we kind of miss sight of what the essence is. And a lot of the times just. Even, like you said, he, he's the hammer is the weight loss so that they buy in. But really what you're teaching them is, is skills in terms of overriding their natural inclination to eat shit food because it's there. And if, and if that gets them there, then you can transition to whatever you want. So there is merit in any diet because people have to adhere to it and they have to track stuff, which makes them have to think. And if they can think a little bit more, then maybe you can get them onto something else. And I think that that's right. the merit of each diet is that people have to use their brain and wake up a little bit. Like you can't go just like grab whatever you want. And that seems like common sense, but like that is the world we live in. That's Western diet is things are there that are shit and there's lots of it and it's fucking easy. You can order shit into your house now from any restaurant before which, it was just pizza which, and Chinese food. Which I saw this recently too. And Chris, you're probably just going to like lose your shit when you think about this. Uh, but you, it's more the millennial generation has really jumped on to what is it, Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes, Skip the dishes. delivery services. These services are extremely fucking expensive. Yeah. So you're really jacking the hell up the price of what is already inflated, you know, food that you're buying. So you've got millennials, and this is so stereotypical, it's low hanging fruit, but complaining about not being able to afford um, you know, buying houses. And I don't think these two equate. It's the same thing as saying that avocado toast is the reason why people can't. And you can get coffee from McDonald's for like a dollar eighty, and it's like $5 delivery. But, but, <laughs> but then it's still but, less than a star. Look at, look at the insanity of a generation that is starting to have food regularly delivered to them via Uber Eats and the, and the justification or the just completely missing out on the expense of this. So that is just mind-boggling in of itself. Um, I still have yet to use Uber Eats. The only thing I ever get delivered is Chinese food and pizza, which has been going on as long as I've been alive. Like that's that's normal. Like if you take that away from us, like I don't want to live in this world. Well, pizza delivery doesn't cost <laughs> very much anyway. It's pizza, right? But I mean, the idea of getting uh, up here, we have Tim Hortons. So like Dunkin' Donuts or Tim Hortons or whatever. Uh, Uber eating donuts and coffee to your house for like what ten dollars surcharge is. Fucking insane as far as I'm concerned. Right. Basically, you get poor. And, and, and I, I work with a lot of uh, younger people, and um, they ask me about supplements and stuff. And, of course, they can never afford the supplements, even a protein powder. So I, I've, I've done some research on this, and I'm like, okay, two scoops of, like, metabolic dry protein is roughly $2.40. I went to the Taco Bell website. The average combo meal there is six fifty. <laughs> it's like you can totally afford – you know, some protein shakes or some creatine or, you know, some things that would help you out. So I, I, I just don't buy it. I don't buy the people buying $50 games, but can't, you know, buy a supplement that they know would help them reach their goal because their goal just isn't really real. It's a want. Mm -hmm. It's a dream. It's a wish because you can definitely make that happen. And the same thing with expensive foods. 
uh, oh, it's, it's, too, it's too expensive to eat healthy. Well, you know, rice, beans, meat, thing of chicken, you know, it doesn't have to be organic and grass-fed. That has nothing to do with whether it will help you lose weight or not, or whether it will nourish you or not. Um, it, it, it's an excuse, really. And because the fast food, like you said, I didn't realize it was a $10 charge. I can't imagine getting something like three, that. $3 worth of Taco Bell and have like a 5 or $6 charge to have it delivered. It, That's it depends, crazy. It depends on the distance. But either think, way, yeah. either way, the, you know what? The only thing I'll challenge you on is Taco Tuesday is probably cheaper calories. So like Taco Bell, because <laughs> it's, it's $2 taco. I, I've eaten Taco Bell once in my life. What? It oh, was terrible. No. It was terrible. No. Well, growing, well, up all New, growing up in Newfoundland, there was no Taco Bell for a very long time, and the he, only one was in the theater where it was we, just microwave we, like, well, frozen let's get, stuff. Let's get Chris's thoughts. He, yeah. he also, last podcast, which we recorded just before this, he doesn't like ketchup, you don't like gravy, gravy and hot you, dogs, and, hot dogs. and it was one of, and po- no, there was one more thing, fuck, what were we talking about? I can't remember. Anyways, even those three, like he doesn't like any of those, like the, at least ketchup. I was saying ketchup was designed so that everyone liked it. Like it was, it's basically drugs. It's grotesque. And he doesn't like it. <laughs> now I, I make my own ketchup. Yeah. Because <laughs> I didn't, well, I didn't want the sugar, or any, or any of the weird but stuff that's in modern ketchup. ketchup. So I actually figured out how to make my own Paleo ketchup. ketchup. I, I call it grown-up ketchup <laughs> because it, it's, it has a very different taste. I'm going to send you that recipe, and we're going to get you to like ketchup. But this is gourmet, grown-up, sugar-free ketchup, and I bet you'll like no, it. No more articles <laughs> till he fucking says he likes ketchup. Like, that's, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> well, if, if, I've, if I've ever done the same city, we'll, we'll have to try it in person. Let, I, I, we got to ask about this one because we've, we've talked a lot about T-Nation and and. So we're talking about working in fitness, writing, and publishing, which you've got 19 years worth of. Um, what do you seek for good content uh, from your contributors? And what are some of the common mistakes you feel fit pros are making in their message? Not just the stuff that's submitted to you, but just how they engage themselves on social media. And, and then maybe some of your own pet peeves along with it. You know, it, it's I, I love it when uh, a contributor will surprise me. And so I can say, I want this, I want this, I want this. And sometimes they can give me something that I'm like, wow, that's, that's amazing. I would have never thought to ask for it. Um, but I have so many pet peeves because that's what I do for most of the day is edit <laughs> and work through content. Um, I, I think what has changed a lot with articles, blogs, and things like that is people just have shorter attention spans now. And you really need to get to the point and teach them something and uh, not belabor it. We used to publish 10,000 word articles. And now we get complaints if we publish a 2,500 word article. You know, too long, didn't read. And people just want the information quickly. And we've always, you know, dug a little deeper into it for people who truly want to, like, understand and get into this. So we've had to adjust over the years to keep the content tighter. I call it being tighter. And most people, most people who write, if you, if you, Andrew, if you write a 3,000 word article, I guarantee you can take out 800 words of it and no one will know the difference. You lost nothing of the message. You lost nothing of the great content. And I call that word vomit. And I don't mean to use you, use you as an no, example. Please, I haven't seen means. you doing this, oh. but um, I, I call it word vomit. And it's when people just, uh, they will take introductions, for example. Okay, I like to cook, so I read recipes online. And sometimes I'm like, ah, what, what do you put the what do you put the oven on to make this? Let me double check. 
And so you put the recipe into Google and the recipe pops up and the first 600 words of the article of the article, they, they, they are mommy bloggers. <laughs> and they're like, my kids love this recipe and my husband says that I should do this. And let me tell you about Christmas one year back in 1987. And you're just like, just tell me what to put the temperature on. <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of fitness writers do that too. Uh, with long, drawn-out, off-topic introductions. Mm. It's perfectly fine. I call it a warm-up. Every writer, we kind of warm up when we start writing an article. I do it, and everybody does it. Um, what you have to realize is most of that warm-up, two or 300 words, should be 14 words and then get to the point because people will just – people can click off now. They're not sitting there with one magazine – with six articles in it anymore, they have the world in front of them on the computer. And I blame blogging a little bit because once it came to the point where an editor and a content uh, content officer no longer had to look and accept your work, you could just put out anything you want. People got lazy with their writing. And uh, blogging should make you a better writer, but in many cases it made people a worse writer because everything they wrote got published by themselves. <laughs> and um, so that's one thing I, I will say is uh, people need to keep things shorter. People need to get to the point. Um, go ahead and have your warm-up, but then get rid of it. And then uh, something I tweeted here recently, um, I said that uh, you need to anticipate your reader's questions. Always think what the practical mm -hmm. applications or implications uh, of what you're writing is. What is your, how's your reader going to use this information? What does it mean to them? They're probably going to say, now what? Be sure to give them that. And PhDs are the, are the worst about this because they, they sort of had this trained out of them in the academic setting is they, they will tell you something. Here's what we have discovered about when you eat carbohydrates at night. And it's, it's very big words and very garbled up and paragraphs at the wrong place and everything else. But the information is there. And then they stop, which leaves the reader wondering, wait a minute. So if I want to try this, what do I do? Like you have to give them that, how do I use this information? How do I put this into practice? You have to be practical with it. And a lot of times PhDs don't like doing that because – you know, a study never gives you the answer. It just gives you an idea, and they're afraid to be firm. Do you ever have and to give everyone Brad should be firm with their writing. Do you ever have to give Brad Deter shit for that or Mike T. Nelson? <laughs> we love those guys, so they're good I friends. I don't remember. I edit so many things. I mean, everybody does it. The best writers in the world. And by the way, I'm uh, editors. Danny edits me. I edit TC. Uh, I edit Danny. We all edit each other, and it's hard not to do this. I always tell people you know, write yourself out of an article. You told me that. Because, yeah. you know, blogging sort of uh, made us, it became Dear Diary. And most people don't care. I mean, if you're Dwayne The Rock Johnson and you say, here's how I train my biceps, great. People probably want to know that. But anybody else, even big mm -hmm. names in the fitness industry, they talk about themselves too much and people just don't care. People just want to know that new technique you have for biceps that works. And uh, and that's where word vomit comes into this and where writing in a uh, soft manner comes into this. For example, people will say things like, well, in my opinion, I think that for my – I like to curl my pinky up when I do biceps. That's the weakest way of writing in the, in the world. What you want to say is curl your pinky up when you do biceps curls 
because you get a better contraction that way and you, you activate more muscle fibers. That sounds firm. You know, that's what Charles Poliquin, that's one of the gifts that he had. He actually didn't like to write. Um, and so he was very quick. So you, you would ask him a question and he would say, he would say, uh, you know, curl your pinky up when you do bicep curls. And it sounded so firm and professional and profound where a lot of modern writers will, will say, well, in my opinion, I think it may not work for you, but it works for me. Curl your pinky up and God, you just sound like such a wuss <laughs> and it doesn't sound firm and you don't sound like a professional. And that's another way of get rid of getting rid of those excess words in an article, too. You need to take this 2,000-word article and you need to get it down to 1,200 words. Get rid of all that wishy-washy stuff. You come off as more professional and people will make, be more likely to make it to the end of your article. That's fantastic. You know, I remember you gave me, uh, you know, like I asked in a, in a message, you know, some feedback, whatever, and it was helpful. It, it's it like guided me. 2,000 words out and you for It's the phrase, that's a famous uh, saying, uh, kill your darlings, which is a, a reference to uh, edit your own content. And I actually don't find it very difficult to edit. In fact, the thing I submitted, I totally rewrote it uh, based on some feedback from a friend of mine. Uh, and I actually felt it came out better. And when I read it in its end form, it's like, this looks pretty much like the way I submitted it. I think there's a couple of little different alterations, but that, that was kind of cool. So that was a really cool thing. And again, like I said off air, I really appreciate the fact that you guys invited me to and, and published something that I wrote. So now I have to do that again and create something else. Not without catching Not be a one-hit one no. wonder with this stuff. Um, one, one, one last bit of advice yeah. for, for people who yes. want to write for T Nation or, or anywhere else. Um, this is a very common mistake. Don't write to your peers. Yeah. Your peers as other personal trainers, other diet professional, uh, professionals, uh, other professors, don't write to your peers. We get so many articles that are fantastic articles, but they'll say, say, say things like, so when your client's knees mm. are coming in on the squat, and it's like, who the hell are you writing to? You know, the 16 personal trainers that actually read articles, you know, write to the end the end client, right to the end person. I say right to right to the regular guy who who wants to learn more. I, and that's why most of the time in classical writing, they would tell you not to do this. But in writing in the fitness industry, it's perfectly fine to say you. Do your knees come in? Do your knees collapse when you squat? You know, not does when one's knees collapse and your athletes, who are you writing to? Write to the right to the, the the end person. Write straight to them. I feel like that's a mistake a lot of people make on their social media as well. Uh, and there's two, two ways this comes out. First is I think a lot of younger, newer trainers are afraid to write things because they're afraid of criticism from, let's say, I'm on their Facebook and I've been doing this a long time. Well, I try to say to them, I'm never going to buy training from you, right? You're just starting out. You should be writing to the people who are not mutual friends with me and Dean Somerset and whatever other Edmonton-based trainers who've been around a little longer. Write to the people on your social media where you can become the go-to fitness and nutrition person. And then for anybody who's got a broader reach and who's been doing it longer, the same thing applies. I think that they often write to uh, get the approval of their peers. And again, for the most part, your peers are not the people who are or they're certainly not buying personal training from you, or it's a very, going to be very, very rare. So instead, you should be writing to the type of people who might actually be your customers or refer business if to that's you. that's what your goal is. Right. Sure. And, and one of the things that people will do when they're writing to their peers is they'll they'll use 
uh, overly grand language because yep. they're trying to impress their peers, but they lose all communication. And I had to write this down in my notes because it was such a fantastic example. I don't mean to throw this person under the bus, mainly because I don't remember who did it, <laughs> but we edited it. We, we, we chopped it right out of the article. Um, so someone was talking about uh, squatting. And the sentence was something like, tactically oscillate one's grounding appendages. What? <laughs> tactically oscillate one's grounding appendages. And I, and I looked at it and I thought, okay, uh, I, I kind of get oscillate, I get this, grounding appendage. And he said it like five times in the article. It finally hit me. Twist your feet. feet. Yeah, it was like, twist your feet probably. <laughs> it's feet. He meant, you know, like screw your feet into the ground. That's all he was saying. And... I thought, did you sit there with a thesaurus and try to do this? And I'm sure, like, maybe your peers were really impressed. Maybe grounding appendage is something you see in the journals. But, you know, the average guy in the gym who reads bodybuilding magazines and wants to know how to get in better shape, he does, he's not going to get grounding appendage. So don't lose your communication. I know all those big words, too. He's, like, screwing his arm into the wall. <laughs> he's, like, which one? He's, like, you see this big, crazy, like, he's, like, that's not working. Right. So Chris, you've, you've told us that you have read paleo cookbooks. So as a writer, uh, I find that most writers are pretty avid readers. We had John Romanello on recently and uh, I mean, he's an avid reader for sure. And funny enough, he, he found a low key way to, uh, to burn me on this question because we always ask people, uh, what is their book recommendation or something that they really enjoy? It's just something that we do because I'm an avid reader. And then John sort of torched me by politely by saying like, and it wasn't directed at me, but it was stop asking for recommendations, go in and read the classics and read all this stuff. So, but I do burn through things pretty fast. So the question is, do you have any books that you, you love that you recommend people read? It could be personal fiction, could be life changing advice. What do you got? Well, you know, I was a, I was a, uh, an English teacher right out of college. I taught high school English and psychology for about seven years. And, um, the classics are boring as fuck, and they make you not want to be a reader. And the best thing you can do in life is to be an avid, avid consumer of books. So I don't like most classics, and I was an English teacher. I taught my students uh, everything that they needed to know, and I would often bring in modern books. We read Stephen King wrote a book for 14- and 15-year-olds. Really? Uh, Cl Clive Barker, the guy who wrote Hell the Hellraiser series, <laughs> wrote a book for 14 and 15 year olds. That's terrible. And I brought I brought those books in, still taught them their vocabulary, still you know taught them their parts of speech and how to write and all this other stuff. And these kids were sophomores and juniors for the most part, and they and many of them admitted to me, this is the first book I've ever finished. <laughs> Now, they're one year from graduating from high school, meaning they've been faking it for all those years. So I'm a big fan of reading for pleasure. Yeah. I don't really like to read uh, self-help or self-improvement books. Uh, every once in a while, I'll get one on audiobook. Uh, the Subtle Art of Not Giving <laughs> F was a great one. And I like that. The only reason why I like that one is because it was so the opposite of everything else that was out there. Andrew hates I, it. I enjoyed the freshness of it. <laughs> it, it it's funny. It's like, a running joke. It's a very strong running joke. We just had Kelly Coffee on, and uh, Kelly doesn't strike me as the sort of person who would probably write for Teen Nation, but she'd be fantastic because she talks about addiction and weight loss, and she's pretty badass. So uh, it came up in the conversation that 
Uh, you're not the first person to recommend that book. So I've called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck the Twilight of the self, self-help <laughs> genre because I, I think it is unmitigated garbage. Uh, and I, I, <laughs> he hates it so much. No, but, but in truth, what I, what I, what I do actually say, I've read it, uh, what I actually do say about it is it's actually a really great entry-level book for the type of people who then might turn around and start reading things like Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow or Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit or any of Ryan Holiday's work like The Obstacle is the Way. And some of the stuff is really good stuff. But uh, you know, it, ultimately, if you're reading for enjoyment, there's actually a lot of enjoyment in that book. And I like to malign the book. I love making fun of it. Uh, <laughs> but at the same yeah, time... I, I, I won't say it is... Uh... It's going to change anyone's life or anything. I think I really liked it because with, with so many crap books out there, crap self-help books in there that actually make you a worse person, <laughs> like The Secret and things like that. It's like basically books written to teach you to wallow in your own own self and not achieve anything. It's The Secret. I love that it was the opposite of that. Uh, but if you want a serious recommendation, I will um, – one of the biggest uh, nonfiction books, most important nonfiction books that I read in recent years was actually The End of Overeating by Kessler, I believe is the guy's name. And uh, you don't have to have a binge eating problem or an overeating problem to, to get a lot of enjoyment out of the book. It's, it's a book that really gets into how modern food makers and are, are, are in restaurants and fast food makers, what they actually do to the food to manipulate your brain with almost drug-like effects to make you not satisfied and to keep eating. And it really, what struck me in it is because he, he starts the book of an example with an overweight person and a fit person. And it made me realize how many fit people actually have uh, borderline eating disorders and binge eating disorder is the number one eating disorder. And as lifters, we're often encouraged to do this. Uh, you know, with cheat meals and things like that. And sometimes that can get really out of hand really quickly. But it's a fa- if you eat food, it's a fascinating book to read because it's amazing to see how our food is being manipulated. Even a chicken breast at a restaurant is not a chicken breast anymore by the time they're done with it. So The End of Overeating by Kessler. Uh, that's a really good nonfiction book for anyone interested in nutrition. Oh, great. <clears throat> Sweet. And then kind of like the final question is the easiest one to answer partially because we talked about it half the time, but um, where can our listeners find you online and kind of the work you do? And then you can kind of briefly talk about T-Nation, which yeah. we already talked about a hundred times. Um, Pornhub is, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> What's your username? I, you know what? I, I, I handle a lot of the, uh, as a chief content officer, you kind of overlook everything. And I handle a lot of the social media for T-Nation, which makes me hate social media for myself. Yes. So really the only one I really keep up with is Twitter. And you can find me at, at Chris Shugart, S-H-U-G-A-R-T. And I love the Twitter platform because you just have a limited amount of time to throw something out there. And Twitter will teach you to be a better writer. Mm-hmm. Even, with the, even though mm-hmm. you can put more characters in there these days, you really have to be clear and to the point and remove uh, remove excess words. So I like Twitter as a teaching tool, and I use it often and to to much much effect of making people angry. So I enjoy it. <laughs> I've actually been following your Twitter for many many years. I'm not very interactive with Twitter, therefore I don't tell people, "Hey, go follow it." I actually never post on it. I use it to follow other people. But yours is some of my all time favorite. I've actually been like 
commenting at yours for a very long time. You wouldn't have a fucking clue who I was years ago. But uh, it's funny, and it's not a lot of it is politically correct. And I think I really enjoy that. I don't think any of it is offensive to most normal people. Um, I think there are probably going to be a certain type of personality that is probably going to uh, be very upset when they <laughs> read what you're posting. But it, it's actually great stuff. It's extraordinarily entertaining and worthwhile. So if you're going to be on Twitter, you, you just follow Chris. It's really good. And like I, like we talked about, bringing you on here, a lot of this had to do with the fact that you know, T Nation has been a resource that I've used for... Again, I, I believe it's probably been about a decade that I've been reading it consistently, and I've got on to meet. We've had a lot of the pod, podcast guests who have been um, writers, contributors to your site for a really long time. Your wife, Danny, has been on here. She's great. Anyone listening, guys, go. If you're finding us for the first time because you found us on Chris's feed, go listen to Danny's podcast. She's super. And then if you if you like that, you can branch out into the Brett Contreras episode or who the fuck else we had on here? We listed all these names earlier. Eric Buck, uh, Charles Staley, Lee Boyce, Nick Tuminello. Uh, the, the list goes on and on. Brad Dieter, we talked about him. Uh, all these contributors. So we've actually had a lot of T-Nation people. And they're super. There's a reason why they've all been on here. Because they're all really successful people. And uh, you know, T-Nation is probably a big reason why a lot of these people are well known in our industry. Right? It's a major driver for that. So... Uh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate the fact that you took the time to talk to us. I don't think you really do a lot of podcasts, do you? Unlike a lot of our guests. Not really. You know, I really prefer to be the behind the scenes guy. Mm -hmm. you're really I, good, you're I, I'm good perfectly voice. fine with that. I don't want to be a fitness celebrity. <laughs> I want to be the guy who makes the fitness celebrity better. Well, we're not going to turn you into a famous celebrity right toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with, say, a, a Brett Contreras at this point. But uh, I hope our listener base does actually check out more of the stuff you're doing and, and writing for T Nation. Your articles are great. And uh, yeah, for everybody who just a regular listener, uh, thanks for continuing to support us. And um, hopefully uh, the next submission that I throw your way isn't total crap and you post it and we'll keep going from there. Thanks, everyone. look forward everyone. to it. Thank you, guys. Why ketchup sucks. Shut up and sit down. Shut up and sit down.